0: This is the last episode of our season. If you're just tuning in, we recommend starting with episode one. Also, please be advised, this podcast
1: deals with sexual abuse. Deep within the psyche of the Christian is the Paschal mystery that out of suffering and death comes new life. In my moments of greatest anguish, whether it is because I have listened to survivors or when I see lay people leaving the church, all of this can be so heartbreaking and tempting to despair. But I'm reminded of advice I was given to hold in one's mind eye the women at the base of the cross and Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And in that moment, in those moments, all of Christianity rested on their response.
0: From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. On August 14th, 2018, Pennsylvania released its grand jury report, and the world read with horror about the Catholic Church's history of child molestation and cover-up.
2: Pope Francis issues a statement to Catholics around the world today condemning widespread sexual abuse within the clergy.
0: One week later, Pope Francis responded with a letter. Most media outlets latched onto his line about abandoning the little ones.
2: He said that the church, quote, showed no care for the little ones. We showed no care
3: for the little ones. We abandoned them.
0: But keep reading. A few paragraphs down, he says, Every one of the baptized should feel involved in the ecclesial and social change that we so greatly need. Every one of the baptized. That's each of us who call ourselves Catholic. For too long, we've allowed the Catholic Church to be defined by its hierarchy, when really, we should be looking across the pews to one another, because we are the people of God. And Pope Francis writes, we are never completely ourselves unless we belong to a people. I have tried again and again to articulate why I feel called to stay in the church and fight for its reform. And it comes down to this. I am not myself without these people. And so I'm committed to justice and healing with and for them. In our final episode, we're asking how the laity, 1.2 billion non-ordained Catholics, are reckoning with the sexual abuse crisis. Okay, now I'm recording, testing out the shotgun mic. For the last six months, I've been keeping audio diaries. It's Wednesday, November 7th. They've given me a space to process a really emotional topic and a demanding production schedule. And I just wanted to reflect. Most are recorded on my phone. And I said, well, I am angry. Late at night, when I'm clearly exhausted. I am so tired. So, so tired. I also brought my recorder with me everywhere. Sometimes I pressed record at the end of mass, or while I was in transit. I'm not going to share all these diary entries with you, because they're private. And like most diaries, not terribly interesting. But because this is the last episode of the season, and because it's about lay Catholics, I thought it was important to share a little more of myself. I don't think it's rocket science. You always want to be respectful, reverential, and help but notice that there is a pattern. Bright, sunny day in Philadelphia.
2: Cold and sunny. It's cold. It's also very cold and sunny. Which is going to be a challenge for you with the whole show, you know? I mean, I think more so with these authority figures. Yeah, not to say that you're not objective, but, like, obviously you have, like, skin in the game.
0: Yeah. I don't know how you can read these stories and not feel anger. I, um... It's hard enough to write a final episode to a crisis that has no end in sight. The last thing I want to do is imply a neat and tidy conclusion. But what I do want to say is this... I haven't been doing it alone
3: Anyone, anywhere you guys
0: want to start? Last week you heard from my mom. It's a beautiful
3: ritual to who not
0: see only gave me this faith.
3: It's done with such
0: reverence, but has shown me how to love this community, despite its flaws.
3: It just exposed that priests, clergy, what have you they're not on a pedestal that they are really more like you and I than ever before.
0: Before Deliver Us was a podcast, I was talking about this crisis with my friend Jessica Koblenz.
4: How do everyday Catholics, lay Catholics, think about their own role in the church?
0: Jess is a Catholic theologian, but she's also been the person on the other end of the line thinking through the outline of a season with me. On a very practical level, I want to understand how the church functions and operates on the most boring, bureaucratic of levels.
4: I also think that might help us begin to explore the question that I hear from so many Catholics, which is, what can we do about this?
0: You'll hear more from Jess in this episode. And then there's my roommate, Nina, who's been there from the start, when we were sitting on our apartment floor, and I was just trying to figure this out
1: before we had a couch and a table, everyone listening. Um, and I remember you talking about, I want, like, I maybe want to look at this and, like, figure this out and, and sort through this. And I remember hearing myself say, you have to do it. Like, then you have to do it.
0: And then there's our production team.
5: Why, what are you doing? <laughs> Why, Why so are nervous.
0: you recording? Sam, Eloise, Carrie, Becca, Sarah, Amber and Eric.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they help
0: me navigate really hard questions.
1: <laughs> because there's this question of what can you do, but then yes. also this question of what can we do? Can sort through
0: do conflicting also? reports, piece together over 60 okay. hours of audio. Uh, interesting. How many hours
2: would you have? <laughs> a
0: And through it all, like we've managed to find little moments to smile and laugh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> which
0: reminded me that a big part of this process depends on our hope. And this thread of hope is really what makes us people of faith to begin with.
1: People of faith are confident in the future. And we are people of faith and of profound hope. Hi, my name is Carrie Robinson. I am the Global Ambassador for Leadership Roundtable.
5: I'm Jeff Boise, and I'm the founder of Leadership Roundtable and former chairman.
0: Leadership Roundtable is an organization Jeff started in 2005, when Catholics everywhere were still reeling from the first wave of the crisis.
1: When the sexual abuse crisis hit the pages of the Boston Globe, it was shattering for anyone who belonged to the church, or who cared about the church, who cared about children and survivors. There was a sense that to do nothing is to be complicit and that we had a moral responsibility as members of this faith family to contribute everything we had. Leadership Roundtable was one of the first
0: to recognize this as twin crises. It's not just about the abuse of children, but the failure of Catholic leadership to deal openly with that abuse. And dealing with this level of systemic dysfunction requires managerial expertise, which is exactly what Leadership Roundtable was offering. Kerry had a background in Catholic philanthropy, and Jeff had been a senior partner of Goldman Sachs and the co-CEO of J.P. Morgan.
5: Frankly, we just used our business acumen in the way that we approached problem-solving at Goldman Sachs and advising clients on how to deal with complex issues. And I said to the uh, executive committee of the USCCB that we could bring together lay leaders from all walks of life together to help give our advice in terms of how to approach the crisis.
0: But why would religious leaders need advice from corporate heads, especially when the advice they'd previously taken from therapists and lawyers was so bad?
5: You know, one of the things that has struck me in the conversations that we've had with the cardinals and the bishops is that they're feeling pretty lonely. The way that they have been formed as priests, as bishops, has been in a very isolated way. And they don't have the full context and experience in all the different functional areas that are necessary to execute their leadership responsibility.
0: They're lonely Because once bishops are appointed, they get only a few weeks training in Rome. And after that, they're on their own. That's where Leadership Roundtable comes in.
1: A signature characteristic of Leadership Roundtable is our convening capability.
0: In February 2019, they organized the Catholic Partnership Summit, which brought together over 200 leaders.
1: There were cardinals, survivors, college presidents, CEOs canonist, lay faithful, women religious, abuse experts, philanthropists, people from many different fields of expertise.
0: And even before this summit, more than 50 dioceses had reached out to them for help. And Leadership Roundtable shared their best practices in management, finances, communications, and human resources development.
1: One of the very first programs we worked on was the development of Standards for Excellence, an ethics and accountability code. It's 55 standards that we believe every parish, every diocese, every Catholic school, every Catholic charity should implement and adhere to. It's not rocket science. It is clear, it is compelling, and most Catholic entities are already compliant with most of the 55 standards. What it does is it trains your eye on those areas that you may never have considered are a standard of excellence or important to the full flourishing of your ministry.
0: The best part of all this? It's landing for bishops. And that's likely because Leadership Roundtable went the extra mile, translating secular practices
1: into something that would be compatible with church teaching and canon law. We never wanted any recalcitrant bishop to accuse us of not being truly Catholic. We were profoundly Catholic. We were exercising baptismal responsibility for the church that we loved. With the finished product, when we went to the Canon Law Society of America, we asked them, Are you sure that everything we are articulating here to benefit the church complies with canon law? Their response was, Not only do the standards for excellence comply with canon law, in fact, if parishes and dioceses implement it and Fulfilled these 55 standards, it would fulfill canon law.
0: Leadership Roundtable has partnered with several bishops, but as you may have gathered, it's made up mostly of lay professionals, and they don't see themselves as the only ones capable of affecting change in the church.
1: If there is any grace at all to come from the sexual abuse crisis, it is that it has roused laity out of our lethargy. There are so many people at every level, cardinals to young adults and everything in between, who are doing the right thing. And there are many, many people of profound goodwill who are hanging in there, helping to recover and reform the church.
0: This question of how we, the lay faithful, should respond, it's been with us for some time.
3: In 2002, if you've seen the movie Spotlight,
1: Spotlight um, the, all
3: the end of the movie,
2: they're almost all victims, Robbie. Spotlight.
3: That was the genesis, if you will. We say that VOTF started where Spotlight ends. This
0: is Donna Doucette. She's the executive director of Voice of the Faithful, or VOTF, which formed around the epicenter of the sexual abuse crisis in Boston.
3: I've been in this position. I think this is going on my 11th year. At first, Voice of the
0: Faithful was just 30 parishioners in a church basement looking for a place to voice their hurt and sense of betrayal. Many of them also had experience organizing
3: nonprofits and were extremely active in the church. So their first instinct wasn't, oh, let's go file suit, or something like that. It was, let's offer our expertise. We have counselors here. We have therapists here. We have lawyers here. We have people who are mediators. Let's offer our services to the diocese.
0: Like many of us, VOTF started by educating themselves and listening to survivors. Now, it's a national operation with an abundance of resources that you can find on their website. But their approach is still about working from the parish level up.
3: And here's why. You have to be willing to step up and work yourselves, make your voices known, offer to do education courses for adults, Offer to um, to have scripture studies. You know, make yourself a part of this church. You can't sit back, throw stones, and say you people aren't doing this. You're not telling the truth. Well, you should be in a position to know whether they're telling the truth because you have already put yourself into the church and you are working within the church.
0: It is Tuesday. April 23rd. I have to tell you that this call for the laity to step up, it makes me hopeful. I just finished writing the final episode of Deliver Us. And if I'm honest, I don't know what's really final. It also makes me a little uneasy. I, I just finished writing a draft of the final episode. Because this podcast aside, I don't think I'm a model parishioner. Since I moved to New York City six years ago, I've gone to several different churches. I started at St. Ignatius on the Upper East Side, but their young adult mass got out late Sunday night and I didn't like walking through Central Park alone after dark. There was no direct subway and the bus made me nauseous. So I went to the Church of the Ascension on the Upper West Side, or occasionally St. Paul the Apostle a little farther south, I like St. Francis Xavier best, but on Sunday, when the trains were barely running, it took practically an hour to get there. And then I moved to Brooklyn and started dating churches all over again until I found St. Boniface, a congregation that goes heavy on incense, beautiful choral music, and frankly, it's just around the corner from a Trader Joe's. I'm not excusing anything. I'm trying to be transparent about what I see as some of the obstacles to parish involvement. And I'm not just talking buses and subways. Yeah, I, I just don't know what kind of position I can speak from. This is from a phone call with my friend Jess, the Catholic theologian I mentioned at the start. I
4: realize that that also requires responsibility from those of us in the pews.
0: Jess agrees that lay participation is key.
4: We need to step up. If we say, like, this is our church, we need to kind of act like it, which requires something of us.
0: But then she goes on to say...
4: The very people who are being tasked, lay people, especially women, with, like, stepping up and taking charge are often the people who are disproportionately affected by sexual assault. It's like, yes, as lay people, as lay women, we need to speak up. But also, like, Maybe there are reasons why it's hard for me to speak up or for other women to speak up. Maybe there are reasons why I can't make it to church every Sunday. It's not just because I'm lazy. It's because, like, maybe it's really hard for me to be right here right now or hard for me to hear even a well-intentioned homily that tries to address the sexual abuse crisis but isn't actually coming from a place of education and sensitivity around the nuances of sexual assault. It just, it makes the situation much more complicated.
0: It's a catch-22, isn't it? We need lay people where decisions are made, especially women. But often, the voices we need the most have been alienated by the church. And even if we haven't been personally injured, it's not easy to re-engage in the middle of a crisis.
4: It made me realize, though, that exactly what you're naming, which is that if I'm not already doing that before a crisis occurs, then it puts me in a disadvantage when I do speak up. As a theologian, if I hear a homily that reflects really bad or even dangerous theology, there are times when I'm like, I need to say something to this priest. But sometimes I hesitate because I don't have any relationship to this person. So my first encounter with this person is, hi, nice to meet you. I wanna tell you why I think what you just said in front of your congregation that you live your day in and day out life in relationship to is misguided.
0: What these conversations have taught me is that yes, a healthy church depends on the engagement of lay Catholics. But if we're asking people to re-enlist, we should be sensitive to the battles they're already fighting.
2: People were angry, but more of it was not articulated. was just more like, I hurt. I'm brokenhearted. I feel betrayed.
0: This is Monica LaBelle. She's a parishioner at St. Thomas More Parish in Atlanta, Georgia. And she's been helping to coordinate the parish response. Work that is emotional and
2: spiritual triage. You'll hear it in her voice. Sometimes you feel so raw and angry and you don't know how to untangle that. So they've turned to something really
0: traditional prayer. More specifically, Teze, a contemplative style of song-like prayer
2: that's meant to be simple and accessible. It's a way to just look at the person sitting next to you or look at this person whose face you recognize and maybe you don't know his or her name and see, oh, this person is hurting too. Monica is no
0: stranger to large-scale problems. She's trained as a social scientist and works at the Center for Disease Control.
2: So because I work in global public health, I tend to, just as a matter of course, tackle problems that are enormous, intractable, and really not mine to solve all by myself. And I immediately saw that parallel in taking on this kind of work within the parish because this crisis is like that. It is a big, ugly, we call it a wicked problem in the policy world. It's got a lot of tentacles. It doesn't solve overnight. It isn't mine to solve overnight. It's more like I can make a tiny dent. I can do it if I listen well. I can do it if I collaborate with others well.
0: Yeah, I think that's an invaluable skill set because often we feel torn between rushing to a solution, And trying to provide some sort of fix or throwing up our hands and saying this is too enormous and complicated and big and I don't see how I can affect change at all
2: and I think that's American of us too right I mean our sort of every man for himself ethos is like that we tend to be problem solvers we tend to look for the most bang for the buck right and this is the opposite of that or it doesn't work
0: yeah yeah why does it not work
2: it doesn't work because a quick fix is going to lead to a Band-Aid type of a solution. And this, because it is a systemic and deeply rooted issue, it is going to require much more than a Band-Aid.
0: So they began with listening sessions, which, like the prayer service, gave people a place to vent. Parishes across the country have been holding listening sessions in response to the crisis.
5: Today marks a solemn and sacred occasion upon which we'll have the opportunity to engage in a formal dialogue about what we as a Catholic parish can do on the parish level in response to the scandal in the church at large.
0: There's no single format for a listening session. I went to one where the parish council broke everyone up into small groups and collected responses on index cards. Some are organized around victim stories. Others have made space for Catholics who are outraged. The most important thing about a listening session is that it creates a safe space for people to speak and, of course, listen. This is exactly what St. Thomas More Parish did. But after a few weeks, people wanted to do more. So the parish council organized another session to discuss next steps.
2: And very quickly, lay people were volunteering their time and talent. I do counseling. I can come at it from this angle. I'm a communications person. I'd love to help with that piece. And with that, the Leadership Crisis Action Committee was born.
0: It was really important that the committee be inclusive, but their goal
2: was never consensus. We knew that our goal had to be more about unity, that we had to move as one. But moving as one does not mean that we all agree. It means that we've included all. Yeah,
0: I mean, is there an example that comes to mind of how you gather in all of these disparate feelings, thoughts, reactions, and don't reach a place of consensus, but do reach a place of unity where people feel like
2: we are moving forward together? Sure. I have several. (laughs) Um, The first one that came to mind when you asked was an early letter that we wrote to our archbishop.
0: At the time, that was Archbishop Wilton Gregory. He's the archbishop that was recently
2: named to replace Cardinal Worrell in D.C. We wanted to invite him to come to a sort of town hall forum with our parish. Initially,
0: Archbishop Gregory said yes. But then he said something to the effect of... Well, a lot of parishes have asked me, and I can't come to all of them, so I'll come to none, which just wasn't acceptable. So the committee began drafting a
2: response. There were many iterations of it. Some of them were really angry, some of them were colorful, (laughs) some of them (laughs) were long. And then there were ideas when do we put this out there as a petition? People never did agree on exactly how to do it. And not everybody's words ended up in that letter. The group never reached consensus.
0: But they did reach Archbishop Gregory. He met with the group privately. But you can see how the process of bringing together so many people
2: is a real challenge. So I asked Monica how she did it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, For me personally, I really gave a lot of reflection time and thought to what am I willing and able to do out of this? What am I called to do? And um, what's mine to do and not somebody else's? What's
0: mine to do and not somebody else's? This is the question I've been wrestling with all along. Because as Monica said, the sexual abuse crisis is a wicked problem with tentacles. We can't solve it overnight, or even in 12 episodes. And yet, you can't fix something until you understand how it's broken. So that meant my first task was educating myself. And so I began with these questions. And if you look back to the titles of our episodes, you'll see them. What are the underlying causes of abuse? And what can we do to prevent it?
5: This is what was convenient to them. These
0: are crimes of power, not primarily crimes of sex. So it's difficult to sustain the argument that celibacy is the cause. How did the church previously cover abuse? And what does transparency look like today?
5: A lot of these priests were repeat offenders. They'd be okay for a year or two, they'd they'd abuse someone, they'd be sent out for treatment, then they'd come back, they'd send them to another parish. They were simply concerned with protecting the church's reputation.
0: What has the church done since Spotlight's reporting? And what has it failed to do? Pay these people to procure
3: adequate training. Posters had to be hung. Background investigations of seminarians and clergy. Special classes for the children to learn, say no, run away, and tell someone. What can we
0: do to get justice for survivors?
1: We've already had 40 states eliminate the criminal SOL, and just about 10 states eliminate altogether the civil
0: SOL. How can we hold bishops accountable for their negligence?
3: And I'll never forget Montalvo's response. Montalvo said, send the letter. Send the letter. Do you think we are fools? Send the letter. So it seems to me there ought to be
5: ways in which we have oversight boards comprised of lay people and perhaps clergy as well.
0: And what are some ways that we can undo the culture of clericalism that made abuse possible in the first place?
5: A priest can ask for uncritical deference, but for the culture to be sustained, we the laity have to give it to him.
0: And with every one of these questions, experts confirmed this is way more complicated than I originally thought. But there are certain things I'm clear on now. The first being, when we listen to survivors, it changes us. Their stories have the power to ignite a fire in popes, governors, lawmakers, and entire communities. So we must keep their voices at the center of the conversation. I also know that it won't be possible to put every perpetrator in jail, but states can reform their statute of limitations and give victims their day in court. This will cost the church, but we do have examples of victims' compensation that are working. I've learned that the church's reforms have made it objectively safer for children and more prepared to deal openly with any new allegations. But the process for holding bishops accountable is still far too murky. And overall, I've found that naming these complexities doesn't paralyze us. It just brings clarity to our questions and focus to our actions. And it's how i figured out what's mine to do and not somebody else's. And I think that when each of us names what we can offer, we become less isolated and more united in our response. In this spirit, we asked how you, our listeners, were responding to the sexual abuse crisis. And this is what you shared with us.
1: Since my baptism, I have been a member of five parishes. Four of those have experienced abuse within the parish, whether it was known at the time or later, especially one pastor who was quite beloved.
2: This is something that challenged my faith. I was asking questions about what was happening now. Where was the transparency that had been promised?
0: When the movie Spotlight finished, I remembered everything that had happened in Boston, and I couldn't contain my tears.
3: I left crying because
0: even the parishioners in Boston there, they couldn't agree on how to expose the problem. It shouldn't be covered up.
3: It must come out into the light, no matter how painful, and you should take legal action. There's just such a cloud of anger and frustration out there, but we also need to be illuminated by facts and reason.
2: So I'm trying to put the research in to figure out what practical action steps laypeople can take together to help build a better church.
0: Some of you are organizing events.
2: Hi, my name is Alani Bonilla and I am studying for my master's in divinity at the Franciscan School of Theology in Oceanside, California. I designed a series going through the process of what, so what, and now what. My name is Rebecca Scheiner, and I'm a parishioner at St. Mary's Church in the town of Hamilton, New York. A group of us took our first step to try to address this crisis, namely by convening a panel, and we focused on how to move forward as a community. Uh, What I really liked about the panel, what I think made it special is that we each represent a different professional and personal perspective.
3: My name is David Gibson, I'm the director of the uh, Fordham Center on Religion and Culture in New York City. In March we had a major event featuring uh, Father Hans Zollner, but also we had the researchers from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice around the corner from us come to update their studies.
0: Some of you are creating resources, like books, blogs, and websites.
5: I'm Andy Otto, and I'm both a parishioner and the pastoral associate at St. Thomas More Church in Decatur, Georgia. One step we've taken is to create an independent website, CatholicLayResponse.com, as an up-to-date resource to learn about the many issues surrounding the crisis and what communities of faith are doing about it.
2: Hi, my name is Deacon Matt Hallback. I'm a deacon in the Diocese of Des Moines, Iowa, at St. Luke's Parish in Ankeny. And I wrote a book, it's actually a booklet, called
5: The Wounded Body of Christ. And it focuses on the clergy abuse crisis through the lens of uh, ecclesiology.
2: Hi, my name is Sarah Larson, and I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I have launched a blog in Spirit and Truth with the goal of helping lay people just be better informed and engaged on this issue.
0: My name is Sister Terry Rickard. I'm a Dominican sister and president of Renew International. We have developed a new parish resource called Healing Our Church Sananda Nuestra Iglesia. At Renew, all our resources have the methodology
3: of See, Judge, Act. The suggested action steps in this resource are small and doable, and are directed mostly at the local level, where effective global action often begins.
0: And some of you are getting more involved in your local communities.
2: My name is Mary Louise Cochrane, and I live in Edinburgh in Scotland. I wondered what my own personal responsibility was in this, and so I reached out to a group of survivors called Incas, and Helen, who leads them, spoke to me about how I was the first person from the church who had reached out to her and offered any solidarity.
5: You know, they say one of the worst things you can be is, is a spectator in your own life. And it seemed like being a spectator in my Catholic life was no longer an option. And, you know, teaching religious ed, it was just a small way to touch a very small corner of the Catholic universe in a small town in Wisconsin but at least it felt like I was doing something.
1: My name is Jane Egan and I am from Northern New Jersey. What I'm doing now is I continue to attend mass. I practice my faith. I believe we are the church and the church is the people and the people go on.
0: I'm not myself without these people. We are not ourselves without one another. That can sound sentimental until we're forced to confront a crisis as grave as this one. The sexual violation of children absolutely demands a response from each of us, whether we've been personally affected or have just learned about this from journalists and grand jury reports. And I think this question, what's mine to do and not somebody else's, is important for a few reasons. It helps us locate ourselves in the midst of a completely maddening situation and identify what resources we can pull from. When we say, this is what I can do, we're also saying, and this is what I cannot do. Here are my boundaries and limitations. And for me, the times when I've been tempted to despair are the times I've taken on too much, or rather taken on things that are not mine to do. And I find hope by looking at what is already being done and discerning where I can help. Because asking what's mine to do forces us to take a better look at the community around us. And when we do, we see that we are not alone. We're a vital part of this living, breathing organism called church. Deliver Us is the proud production of American Media and Spoke Studios and was recorded in the quietest place in New York City, the William J. Low Studio. This podcast has been a labor of love for so many talented people. Eric Sundrop is our executive producer, which translates to a jack of all trades and a master of fun. Eloise Blondio has a great ear for narrative and saintly patience for connecting guests over Skype. Rebecca Seidel is the reason this podcast sounds so smooth and perfectly scored. Chris McCormick composed the theme, and you're hearing his haunting rendition of Lacrimosa right now. Each episode would be significantly wordier were it not for Sarah Esikoff's razor-sharp edits. Sam Sawyer is a fact-checking fiend, and Carrie Weber knows everybody you could possibly want on mic. Kieran Freeman made sure we were actually recording in the studio. And Amber Smith is the best hype woman a podcast could ask for. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your writer, your host, and yours for the long haul. And while this may be the final episode of Deliver Us, it is certainly not the end of the sexual abuse crisis or our commitment to reform. The best way for you to stay engaged with this issue is by signing up for our newsletter at deliveruspodcast.org. If you do that, we can share any updates or additional resources with you. You can also continue to get in-depth coverage at americamagazine.org slash abuse. And lastly, if you would like to make suggestions for future coverage at America Media, we've got a new email. Send us a message at deliverus@americamedia.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800 656 4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your Diocese Victim Assistance Coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash vac.